Good evening and welcome to this very special 5 by 15 event with Lucy Jones and Amy Liptrop. Lucy and Amy are no strangers to 5 by 15s virtual stage. Last spring, we were delighted to host them both for an online conversation about Amy's acclaimed and best-selling book, The Instant, the follow-up to the hugely successful The Outrun. And now they are both here together again to talk about Lucy's new book, Matrescence, on the metamorphosis of pregnancy, childbirth and early motherhood. The book is a groundbreaking, urgent and deeply personal investigation into the emerging concept of matrescence, a recognition that pregnancy, childbirth and early motherhood marks a period of far-reaching physiological, psychological and social transformation. The book was published just last week and has had some amazing reviews already. Writing in The Observer, Jude Rogers said that it's, quote, the best book I've ever read about motherhood, bloody and alive, roaring and ready to change conversations. Naturally, we can't wait to hear more about the book. But let me introduce both of our speakers first. Lucy Jones is a writer and journalist. She previously worked at the NME and the Daily Telegraph, and her writing on culture, science and nature has been published widely in GQ, BBC Wildlife, The Sunday Times, The Guardian and The New Statesman. Her best-selling book, Losing Eden, was a Times and Telegraph book of the year in 2020. Tonight, Lucy will be in conversation with Amy Liptrot, author of the Sunday Times bestsellers, The Outrun and The Instant, which was shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize for Nature Writing. Amy also writes columns and reviews for various magazines and newspapers, including The Guardian and The Spectator. We're so excited to have them both with us. Amy and Lucy will be in conversation for around 45 minutes tonight, and there will be 15 minutes or so at the end to get your audience questions. So please do post them in the Q&A box at any time during the event, and we'll get to as many as we can. The lovely Newham Books will be selling copies of Matrescence and both of our speakers' books tonight. All the information about how to order those will be posted in the chat. Without any further ado, Lucy, Amy, over to you. Good evening, everyone. I'm so pleased to be talking to Lucy Jones. I love her writing um, and The Nature Seed and Losing Eden are both really important books for me. Um, Lucy and I first met years ago in an AA meeting and uh, now we have similar age children and are writing about similar territories often. Uh, I read Matrescence in one intense day, underlining masses and just feeling really stimulated. It's um, brilliantly researched and argued, experimental with form and genre and just really exciting writing. Uh, and I think we're going to start with Lucy reading a bit from the beginning of the book. Sure. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Amy and Jack. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be here with you all. Um, yeah, I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction. When a human animal grew inside my body, I started to realise that some hoodwinking had been going on. When she left my body, I noticed more. Pregnancy, then birth, and then, big time, early motherhood simply did not match up with the cultural, social and philosophical narratives I had grown up with. What I felt and saw did not accord with what I had been taught about women and men, fathers and mothers. I could not connect my present experience with what I had so far absorbed about the body, the mind, the individual and relational self and our collective structures of living. At first, I thought that I must be going mad I searched desperately for ways of understanding what was happening to me. 
I started to realize that my mind had been colonized by inadequate ideas about womanhood, about motherhood, about value, even love. There was canker in the roots of my habitat. A sense that I had been fundamentally misinformed about the female body and maternal experience set and fast. The first day that I felt nauseous, five weeks or so pregnant, I was excited. Morning sickness was a sign of a healthy pregnancy, I had read, and it confirmed to me what had seemed so mysterious and diffuse, that inside me was the child I had always dreamed of, finally. When it came, the nausea was immediately severe, but I figured, well, let's see, the morning is around four hours of the day, not even a quarter of my waking hours. I can deal with that. I nibbled ginger biscuits and took sips of water. Then noon came around. Severe nausea persisted. 3 p.m., still there. 6 p.m., what? 8 p.m., how? 10 p.m., it remained. Then, like this, the next day and the next and the next and the next, all day, every day, for five months. Meanwhile, a parallel, more disquieting change seemed to be happening in my mind. I was overjoyed to be pregnant, attached to the growing creature within, but I found myself becoming subdued, more introverted, increasingly disrupted as the weeks passed. I had no language with which to understand or describe this change, but my consciousness felt different, restructured or rewired. This freaked me out. It was as, as if someone else had moved in, making a home in both my uterus and my brain. I thought I must be imagining it. I had understood pregnancy to be a relatively straightforward physical process with a few hormonal days here and there. I thought the baby would grow inside my body as in a flower pot, that I would still be the same person, but that didn't seem to be the case. In the hours, weeks and months that followed the birth, I grew more and more alienated, frustrated by the lack of language to articulate the reality of childbirth. I had always believed in the power of words, but here they failed me. No one was talking about pain, about birth as an emotional process, about how it felt mm -hmm. to have grown another human, to be two people at the same time, and then to be vacated, to push a person into being. I knew nothing about the emotional and psychological transition that follows birth. I had no idea that something was happening to my brain, that it was literally changing shape. I had no idea what was coming, the anxiety, the life exploding romance, the guilt, the transcendence, the terror, the psychedelia, the loss of control, the rupture of self. Thank you so much uh, setting out some of the, the questions that you go on, on to answer. Um, starting with the title, what is this word matrescence and what does it mean to you? So um, the word matrescence, it, it's very similar to adolescence and you kind of pronounce it, it's kind of similar if you think <clears> of it like that. So um, the word, I first came across the word um, when my first child was about nine months old um, and I was quite blindsided by um, the experience and felt um, just very kind of, yeah, strange and different. Um, but I thought that there was something wrong with me and that I was probably imagining it. Um, and then I read this article in the New York Times and a reproductive psychiatrist called Alexandra Sachs um, mentioned this word matrescence. Um, 
and I ordered the book where the word was first cited, um, which was a essay collection. That's on my other bookshelf from the 1970s. Um, and the word matrescence was first used by the late American anthropologist Dana Raphael in an essay about um, how in most other cultures and societies in the world, becoming a mother is seen as a significant um, developmental stage, even a kind of life crisis for women. So um, Dana Raphael talks about the Tikopia people who have a sense of the newborn mother um, as well as the newborn baby. And she wrote about how um, the process of becoming a mother is a physical change, yes, but it's also a, a psychological, emotional, existential, a, a change in identity, a change in all your relationships. Um, and, and, and lots of academics have kind of built on that idea. And, and now there's this emerging concept mm. of, of matrescence as a way of thinking about um, the changes, um, which I think are particularly very social as well, in terms of our culture and how we think of mothers and women. Um, what it means to me, it was both personally extremely useful and soothing and consoling to feel that this, um, this experience that I was having was a thing um, and actually a big thing. And secondly, I found it a really um, kind of creatively and in intellectually generative um, and fertile kind of way of thinking about metamorphosis. Um, always been interested in kind of change and, and process and starting again and so on. And yeah, it, it felt like a kind of useful but really interesting way of exploring more. I found it interesting when you said there are lots of movies and books, coming of age movies about adolescence and young adulthood, but that's not something that we see as a genre for matrescence. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. So like, you know, we all know that adolescents are um, awkward and having a tricky time. And and what I found when I was I'm my matrescence, my first matrescence, very like an adolescent, very kind of awkward and like I didn't know mm. what to say and kind of strange but but um you know importantly I felt very alone whereas in adolescence you know as you just say we have all the culture we're together and you know we're you know we're on the phone all the time or at least I was in the 90s and you know there's all these kind of um cultural kind of signifiers which mm. are kind of rituals and rites in adolescence mm. and that is what is missing um and Additionally, and maybe we'll go on to this, but the new kind of brain science of parenting and the mm. neuroscience of the maternal and parental caregiver brain tells us that the, the effect on the body of, of pregnancy, childbirth and early motherhood is as seismic as adolescence. Um, so we're just kind of learning that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, that's just studied. Yeah. Mm. Um, surprisingly, for a book about motherhood, you open by talking about slime moulds and you go on to sections about in between the chapters about things including tadpoles, eels, volcanoes, sea squirts, the moon. Um, so can you tell me about slime moulds? Um, a lot of people won't even know what that is. Um, and also about how these ecological sections relate to the themes of, of the book. Yes, sure. I would love to. Um, so firstly, if, if no one knows what a slime mould looks like, 
Hmm. Look up Barry Webb's photographs after this um, this conversation. So <clears throat> slime molds are um, well, the scientific name are, is Myxomycetes, and they were thought to be a kind of fungi, um, but they're not. They're in the kingdom Protista, and they they have various different um, stages of the life cycle. Um, at the beginning, they are what's called a plasmodium. Well, there's lots of different species, but a lot of them start as this kind of blob of kind of slime. It's often yellow. Um, I mean, they are everywhere. I, I tracked one in the cemetery I live next to in Basingstoke the whole of the winter. You just have to look out for them. Anyway, when they're in this stage, they're more like an animal than anything else. They're kind of predating, moving, scoffing bacteria. Um, they have a, an intelligence which has been um, kind of illuminated by uh, experiments in labs. They can solve mazes. They can make decisions. They can kind of teach. Anyway, and then at some point they turn into these um, sessile, static, spore-releasing organisms, which you, you're going to have to look them up to really <laughs> them. But they are so beautiful. They're absolutely tiny. They're like a millimetre high, but they're like every colour of the rainbow, iridescent, goblet-shaped, egg-shaped, nets. It will blow. Oh, Lucy, you've frozen. Oops. Um, Lucy, I don't know if Lucy's frozen for other people, but she has for me. Um, <clears throat> uh, yes, we'll work on getting her back and connected in just a moment. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really want to uh, find out where I can find these slime molds. Um, and I recommend, I have seen some of um, Barry Webb's pictures and Lucy's own pictures, um, which she posts on her uh, Instagram of um, uh, her slime mold investigations um, in the woods, I think, near her house. Uh, hmm. Oh, that's a show. <laughs> I've got Lucy frozen in, um, in mid conversation and we're trying to get her back um yeah so just to remind people that uh you can um submit questions uh which we'll do at the end of the session <clears throat> uh while we try to get lucy back um maybe her kids are streaming telly and uh using up her bandwidth which would be entirely appropriate for our conversation Mm -hmm. hi lucy are you back with us i am very sorry about that can you hear me now i can yeah i can hear and see you fine i'm not sure what happened so i was talking about slime molds yeah um, so the reason i was drawn to them was because mm. um they seem to uh enact a very um kind of dramatic unusual and unexpected metamorphosis that they kind of started in, in this this way of being this kind of yellow <laughs> and they turn into these kind of intricate, beautiful, um, spore-releasing organisms. And I love, I'm really interested in hidden things and also kind of issues of perception and ways of seeing. Um, and I suppose I was thinking a lot at the time about how um, so much of motherhood felt very hidden to me. The, my experience of it was really an experience of kind of 
deception or, or unmasking, realizing what it takes to sustain human well-being. Um, you know, and in my naivety, I'm ashamed to say I had no idea actually how difficult care work is and what you know, my mother and my grandmothers um, had to do to, to keep us going. Um, so I was kind of interested in this, this, the, these organisms, which were so, so incredible, but so hidden. Um, and also just quite, um, uh, yeah, like incredibly beautiful as well. And, and mm-hmm. kind of beautiful. so yeah, the ecological vignettes were there because, um, I wanted the book, even though it is very much about my own personal experience um, and it's kind of, you know, a lot of memoir, I was wanting it to be also interesting to people, you know, who'd been through any change in process and transformation. And I suppose I was I was trying to kind of bring in those stories to talk about the universal nature of change mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, it's something that we all go through in different ways. And it's also so much in the natural world. Um, and I couldn't really find myself in any films, TV, books, apart from, you know, there was, you know, Rachel Cusk and a, a few other ones eventually I found. Um, but I couldn't f- find my experience portrayed or expressed kind of in the culture around me. And that actually what I found, where I found it was in the woods um, mm. and in the non-human world. And that's where I was kind of felt soothed and part of part of something. Mm. Um, I'm determined to both find and identify slime molds now, generally on, on, on wood or on dead trees. Yeah, on any kind of organic material, mostly dead wood. You want to be going out on a day where it's it's rained recently. Mm-hmm. So they really like kind of moist wood. Um, but you know, we I live in a garden in a town and we have kind of old rotten kind of fence posts and pallets. And mm-hmm. I found lots of species, oh, yeah. species there, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um uh, leaves you know anything like that okay I will report back when when I find one um one one of the elements in the book that I found most interesting and challenging um was your dismantling or maybe interrogation of of both the natural childbirth movement and the breastfeeding lobby um and you identify maybe similar evolutions of thinking in in both areas. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as I've just as I have said, this book is because I wrote it when I had young children. It, it's very much focused on my own experience and my my experience of birth and breastfeeding was. Um, simply well it's not simple it's always so complex but um I went into birth thinking that it would be fine (laughs) um and you know and I was very much uh into kind of hypnobirthing and um uh, um kind of natural birth ideas and um I was that was very appealing to me it's very seductive it was very you know I liked the idea of having choice and autonomy and agency um and it was it was okay but it was not what I thought it was going to be and I know that's of course you can never really prepare but there were certain things that happened in my experience of birth which I would have liked to have had more information about um 
And I think however people give birth or, or whatever happens in birth, that does seem to be quite a common thread that, um, you know, while you know, there is definitely a need to be sensitive to people mm. who are pregnant and, and you know, want to, to have filters up and, and that's a really difficult and, and complex issue, um, there seemed to be a paucity of uh, information about, for example, birth injuries or latent labour. So I was in labour for a really long time, you know, kind of 40 odd hours, um, uh, which meant that I kind of missed a couple of nights sleep and started motherhood just very, very, very tired. Um, mm-hmm. And and the same with breastfeeding. So, you know, like, um, we are in this country encouraged to exclusively breastfeed, really wanted to, had never even considered that I wouldn't. I was breastfed, um, found that actually I couldn't, I could, that there were issues that I had. And, and that was, that was devastating. Um, and, you know, it's something kind of I've worked through, but it was, it, it, it was a real sense of failure. But I think the important thing was that, um, Again, it was a kind of experience slightly of deception, of not being given all the information that actually, you know, it, it's not always simple for, and it's not easy. And maybe we don't live in a society where, you know, there is enough uh, support or places to feed or, you know, um, there's only 1% of people exclusively breastfeed in this country, though, you know, we're told that we must. So that, that says something I think about what's happening anyway um you've really pulled me into the most contentious yeah <laughs> I think I guess what I'm I'm I think the 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 one of the main points I wanted and the, the important things that I wanted to do um or areas I wanted to draw attention to by kind of talking about natural childbirth and you know the, the this idea is um kind of question the way we employ ideas of what's natural um, with women and mothers and around motherhood. Um, I found it interesting that, you know, still today, there are, are many taboos around around this area. You know, it, um, you know, we seem to really want to kind of sacralise birth and motherhood and, and feeding and so on and um we so want it to work and I'm sure there's there's so much which is well intentioned there but we disavow also the the horror and the pain and the you know the the blood and the injuries and the you know what can happen in for decades after childbirth mm-hmm. seems that we're just get, we're not getting the full picture mm-hmm. um and I think that is that's harmful for women because we don't get at the, the health care that we need um and the support it means that we're all expected after kind of a week or two just to like get on our feet and go back you know to normal life uh unlike other cultures in the world who are have rites and rituals around caring for the newborn mother but I think there's also a wider um issue here in how we think about um ourselves in a kind of ecological context and how we situate um ourselves in the natural world and I feel that you know we're you know we're in this climate ecological planetary crisis, and that's a failure of ideas and philosophy and thought and sensibility. Um, and it kind of it feels to me that 
we've inherited these kind of post-enlightenment ideas of nature and us being separated from nature and nature and um and trying to kind of dominate it in a quite imperial kind of colonial way I will get I will bring in motherhood don't worry um and we've lost a sense of uh the sublime or fear or awe or the respect that we actually probably need more of um, to kind of counter our um, our human supremacy. And and I I have a feeling that if we could maybe bring the reality of how we are we all begin life, our natality, into the open a bit more, then there might be there might be a shift in, in our sensibilities around how we relate to you know, the material world. Um, yeah, thank you for talking about this and sharing your experience and they are complex and, and sensitive issues. Um, but yeah, you are quite quite strong in, in the book and you said in, in the drive to normalise breastfeeding, the pendulum has swung too far, straying into misinformation and, and deceit. Um, you know, that was uh, some of your experience, which I found... Um, uh, and you you go into detail about the sort of ideas of natural childbirth and how these have been disseminated and um it's really interesting everyone uh should should read the read the book um yeah thank you for sharing your your own experience you've worked as a as a as a journalist you are a journalist how did you find moving into to memoir after doing um you've not written so personally before um from uh from journalism um yeah uh well that's never asked been asked that question before that's interesting um um well I think I've always kind of written personally privately um mm -hmm. in my own experiences down um often in kind of terrible poetry but with you know as soon as my daughter was born um I, I had the kind of impulse that I needed to write everything to make sense of it. And you know, much of that was to to try and find the language and the vocabulary, which I still think is very um, lacking in terms of maternal subjectivity. Um, I, I could have done this book a different way. I think probably if I'd had longer time, I could have used other kind of case studies or brought in other other voices, but I, you know, there's that thing about how in pregnancy you're like pushed to your limit of your like your metabolic limit of like super, basically in pregnancy you're like you can't get the human body can't go any further. It's like mm. you're, you're running a marathon basically every day. Kind of felt with this book doing it with my young kids, you know, I all I could really have managed was to get my own um story on the page and then bring in research which um related to the memoir aspect and then try and broaden it out so it would be um useful and interesting for other people but yeah it it, it feels very different from my other books and um you know it, it feels like quite a risk being so personal and quite exposing um but it's also been extremely cathartic and I've been very well kind of looked after by my agent and editors and um you know I think it's uh, early motherhood 
you know aspects of 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 the maternal experience are so underwritten um and it felt quite frightening to write in a way that I knew that would be published but actually the experience of that block and that I felt like I had to like slay the angel of the house every day before I sat down to work and (laughs) I was kind of interested in that that I felt so like so much pressure against me that it was you know the voices were you know like this isn't a thing like you know no one needs to know this stuff or you know this isn't this is domestic, you know, this isn't real intellectual work, you know, and I thought, I thought I was kind of like egged on almost by that, mm-hmm. those, those kind of set that sense, I thought there's something really interesting in here, I'm, I'm having this, like, feeling that I shouldn't be writing this, um, and where's that coming from, um, so yeah, it, yeah, I mean, it's only just come out, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, often the best writing does take some kind of risk whether it's uh, emotional or intellectual or artistic and um i think it's i think it's really paid off um i i really appreciate your description and celebration of all the skills involved in looking after after the young children which as well as being sometimes boring and difficult can be creative and um perhaps now you would you would read another section from the chapter, I love the title of this chapter, what's it called? Um, uh, Care Work and Creativity in Late Stage Capitalism. <laughs> yeah, sure, thank you. Um, okay. My children demanded new ways of being, silliness, cuddles, repetition, echoes. Some of it was painful and boring, some of it was magical. Spontaneity spontaneity and surprise were key attributes of these babies' employees. They had no time for self-doubt. They were exactly who they wanted to be. They wanted to move, they wanted to dance, to touch, to laugh. They needed me to be in the present and give them a stream of immediate experiences, and so I fell in love with the world again. Have you seen the shape of water as it is being poured? Have you let a bumblebee's spun sugar legs walk across your palm? Have you tried to say two words at the same time? Have you seen the opalescence of a bubble? Have you watched a slug slither? Have you tried to feel the planet moving? I was paid with kisses and heavenly bodies, with gallons of dopamine and canisters of oxytocin with cones and drawings and beauty. I live now with Marilyn Monroe and James Dean. I was paid with the signature sound of their laughter and rat-a-tat giggles. They showed me how life could encompass play. I had lost touch with how it felt to be in a body, to horse around, to live through the senses. My creativity for the sake of it had gone underground, but they unearthed it. They taught me how to glory in the simple pleasures of being a sensuous creature alive on earth. Children live in the moment, outside the marketplace. Their days are a constant remaking and creating and shedding and imagining. They invent words and questions and ideas I couldn't dream of. Their minds overflow with ideas and possibilities. They cherish the world. They cherish being alive. The tension between this work and my earning work was high. I realised I had been moulded into a loyal, obedient earner 
addicted to acquisition and the external metrics of success. Increasingly though, I was trying to find a path towards a new way of caring, a radical way, an authentic way, beyond the martyred maternal ideal. I wanted to start recovering from my indoctrination and hyper-consumerism and turbo-capitalism, from the enlightenment values of conquest and mastery and domination that I feel and resent in my cellular being and step out of the value system that placed capital and goods accumulation way too high. Mm. Thank you. Totally love that section. So many interesting ideas and and beauty. Um, And when you talk about stepping outside of the um, of the current value system, just wonder if you have any ideas for how that works in in practice. Like, what kind of things have you discovered? And <clears throat> well, yeah, it's a really good question. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, probably like spending as much time in the woods mm-hmm. um, as I can. Mm-hmm. Although that's enough, to be honest. Um, I think very hard I think I probably like wrote that section or was thinking about that section a lot when um COVID uh we were in lockdowns and um my husband lost his job and we were both at home looking after the children together and so I was with kind of another adult Mm. and we had I had some self-employment grants Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my like experience of motherhood, although it was hard in lots of different ways, there was a sense of I was actually less lonely and I was kind of because of the, the self-employment grants, which kind of gave me a sense of what it might be like to have a kind of care wage or a mm-hmm. basic income. Um, it took away that and like, kind of, you know, the financial imperative. Um, and. And it was quite kind of idyllic and utopian for a little while. Um, But then, you know, we tried to both work part time. We tried to share it, but it's it's pretty impossible with, you know, needing to earn and so on. Um, I'm I'm working on it, Amy, and I'd love to hear anyone else or anyone Mm -hmm. else has found. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I think, you know, and I've written about this in my other books, for me, spending time, you know, with with other beings, you know, with things becoming other things and you know, in the natural world, you know, it's free. Well, you know, it, it's complicated, but um, I, I feel like that's a value that I have that I want to pass on to my kids that they can, you know, that, you know, somewhere, something like spending time, you know, outside and in the woods, it doesn't have to cost any money. And, and that's, that's a kind of like to capitalism, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you also talk um, about about community and sharing with other mothers, and you know what we're doing now, for for example, and um, what you're doing with that book, and you found value in in um, in community. Yeah, yeah I um, took me a while to feel that I could open up to people in <clears throat> how I was feeling. Um, in in my matrescence and um I just felt very for until I kind of discovered the word matrescence and started reading you know Adrian Rich was big for me of woman born and her Mm -hmm. concept of 
um, the institution of motherhood compared with the experience of motherhood. So mm. it kind of delineated between the two. And I found that was really helpful because it kind of gave me permission to talk about the institution of, of, of modern motherhood. And, you know, because I guess like, I think a lot of it for me in the beginning was like, I, you know, I had this baby that I so loved and I didn't want anyone to think if I said I was struggling, that I would, didn't love her. Mm. I was complaining, you know, it, it felt, that felt so kind of like difficult and taboo but you know the more I read and the more I realized that you know, the, the conditions of modern motherhood are very strange that we're living in and very um cruel I think for for, for women in different ways um but you talk about the pressure that you feel um that you felt because of the idea of intensive motherhood and how, and how that plays out and often can create something of an identity crisis uh yeah, so I found I found that phrasing really helpful too. So intensive motherhood was a phrase coined in the 90s by Sharon Hayes, and it's been really mm. developed by a number of um, academics, including Andrea O'Reilly and others. Um, and it means the the, the imperative in, of modern motherhood in, in most kind of Western cultures to um, you know, spend a lot of time, resources, emotional intelligence, um, enjoy it, be there all the time, very mm-hmm. present, um, you know, kind of what it says on the tin, it's also called total motherhood or kind of immersive mothering is how I think Dr. Sears called it. Um, and I found it, what I found was that that was very much in me, mm-hmm. the sense that like, Though, you know, when my baby was nine months and my maternity leave payment stops, I would need to earn. I also felt that I had I, I had to be very present all the time, like, you know, know about child development, child psychology. I was very scared about messing things up. Um, and it was really useful to me to do the research for the book to kind of in, unpick where these ideas have come from. And on the one hand, you know, it's great. We know a lot more about uh, children and psychology and attachment and you know what kids need um, and how to talk to children in a different way and how to treat children in a different way. But at the same time, um, it seems like in our kind of post-Bowlby, kind of post-attachment theory society, we have um, left out and forgotten what Bowlby really said, which is that a mother can't do it alone. A parent mm-hmm. can't do it alone. They need society. They need community around them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's bonkers to think that that's possible. But we seem to have in the kind of a lot of the discourse um, and a lot of the books that I was reading at the beginning, you know, it's it's all put on the mother still today. Um and, and perhaps that is changing, but I think that um, that was that was very helpful in kind of you know seeing it for what it was. And so much of this experience was trying to see, you know, realizing how kind of occluded so much of the maternal experiences, and how you know I think for the first time I understood myself as a truly ecological being that had been kind of infected by a lot of social ideas that I needed to root out um and and that was kind of interesting too um but it's very tricky I write about kind of gentle parenting respectful parenting and that movement and 
you know it's it's very it's very seductive you want to be you want to be all those things but mm. it seems to me that so many mothers I know and I did a kind of little you know little data survey for the book are really struggling are really stressed are really burnt out are really finding it difficult to do everything and mm-hmm. um needs to change mm-hmm. yeah a lot of these ideas have a, a well-meaning basis but in in practice without support are very hard to uh, enact um and yeah i just felt felt on the book like you were just a very conscientious mum you know wanting to do everything right and um uh uh that's yeah that's but it's, it was almost impossible to you know you can't do it can't do it all all right um so we are getting quite a few um audience questions coming in i've got other things i'd like to ask you but i'm just um thinking that i will um jump on to onto some audience questions so we've got one saying uh, the chapter about how cells are exchanged between mother and baby is amazing. Can you explain that for the audience? <laughs> yeah, sure, thank you. Um, yeah, so this is the area of um, microchimerism. Uh, and I got interested in it because when my daughter was born, I really felt that she hadn't completely left my body, that kind mm-hmm. of my attention was different and that there was something going on that wasn't what I'd been told that I don't know there was a kind of enmeshment or something um and I I started to to read about um the the research that had been done and particularly by uh, uh Diana Bianchi and, and Amy Boddy has done a lot of work around it that um <clears throat> shows that um the cells from the fetus cross the placenta uh, into the mother's body. And um, after the baby is born, um, those cells remain in the body, in the mother's body. And there's an exchange. We don't know much about the other way around. Um, and these these cells of the fetus have been found in, in women in, in multiple areas of the body, in all kind of organs, lungs, heart, um, brain. And they don't know really exactly why um so that it could be that they're neutral just a kind of byproduct of the um the fetus and then the 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 exit it could be a negative thing so they've been found at sites of um lung cancer Mm -hmm. but they could also be positive so they they could be at the site of lung cancer to to be helping repair there's one theory um that they, they could be in the breasts and the brain to kind of help with lactation or um attachment bonding and so on um so you know it, it's quite early days but amy body one of the um, biologists who studies in this area compared it to me with like the science of the microbiome and how mm-hmm. 10 years ago people were like it's a big deal but we don't really know about it um and she kind of said that's that's where we're at now you know we know that these cells are doing something and they probably are uh helping helping survival in some way maybe um but we don't exactly know yet um one of she calls them zombie cells which mm. are, you know this idea that they you know some and sometimes i think she got really interested in it in her second pregnancy which um similarly to mine seemed to extract a lot more than her 
from her and the idea of maternal fetal conflict and that you know sometimes I mean you know I feel it sometimes with my children today that they want more than the mother can give there's kind of this sense that they can extract anyway it's it's not a science fiction film it's real life yeah so interesting to be at the the forefront of probably ideas that we'll we'll hear more about um and also for the science to kind of confirm something that you were experiencing or feeling kind of instinctively that something's going on here you know I'm I'm still actually physically connected to this child and and also the idea that just because something's natural doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you it, you know it, uh, um yeah the the uh, all the things about the um the cells being injury sites or yeah it, it, all really interesting stuff um <laughs> uh <laughs> And to carry on with some of the um, cutting edge science, um, she touches on quantum biology in the book. Can she tell us how that helped her insights and developed her thinking? Uh. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess that was, um, you know, so I, I was kind of trying to search everywhere for clues to try and make sense of this experience that I felt to be um so kind of weird and interesting so disavowed um and I was spending quite a lot of time looking for tardigrades with my microscope so tardigrades are microscopic animals they're sometimes called water bears or moss piglets another thing for you all to look up afterwards they look like cross between like a manatee a pig and a hoover bag they're amazing (laughs) and they're I was kind of drawn to them because they are very resilient um, and they are very tiny and hidden again. Um, but also I, I I found one in some moss and, and looked at it and it was just amazing to see one up close um, in my microscope. But also I'd um, read that one had supposedly, they'd supposedly been quantum entangled. Um, some some researchers had, had claimed to have, have done that. Um, I don't really understand quantum stuff. Like I think Einstein call it, or oh, I can't even remember what no, there was a phrase, spooky happenings over there or something. Mm-hmm. But there's something in my um my mind that um even that there was something about how kind of a hard it was to kind of understand to get my head around, which seemed to mimic a lot of my experience of early motherhood, um, a like looking after a baby and why I felt so weird. Um, But also there was some interesting new research about how quantum could be involved in things like photosynthesis. And um, it it seemed to me like a symbol of uh, a force or a, a happening that is probably much more involved in things that we uh, that more than we realize and but our human minds can't quite comprehend so even though I'm kind of embarrassed because I can't you know I'm not a physicist and I can't explain it almost that's the point like it kind of felt I have this you know we know so little about the world around us but we think we really do and we think we're kind of on top and in charge and that it's our right to to control everything and I like the quantum stuff because it kind of suggests that we might 
we might do we might benefit from kind of taking a step back and being a bit more humble as you mm-hmm. yeah I don't think anyone can really understand quantum stuff that's kind of the the point it's on a on another level although I did this quote that you've got at the beginning of of that chapter about 21st century biology is fundamentally different from 20th century biology it's a biology of relationships rather than entities I found that sort of interesting way in to to thinking about a lot of the things that you're you're talking about um yeah about definitely. the interconnection of uh matter <laughs> um, yeah and I think I mean the kind of one probably the overriding theme of the book is like interdependence and interconnectedness and how you know, we're so focused on the baby and the infant, but there's no, you know, that it's an environment and it's mm. the mother or the birthing parent or, you know, that it's, we, we it just feels like it's so occluded, the, the work of maternal. And I find that kind of spectacular and fascinating. Um, I have another question from the audience. Um, After my baby was born almost four months ago, congratulations, uh, several older women in my life said, if we knew how hard it would be, no one would do it. In response to my shock at the continual pain and bleeding while recovering, there was also so many comments of, but it's all worth it. In the immediate aftermath, bleeding and afraid, I felt that comment invalidated what I had just experienced. How uh, the comment about, but it's all worth it, I think, um, how can we talk about the gore and pain to pregnant women without making them even more afraid of birth? What a great question. And yeah, I'm so sorry that you've had um, so much pain and congratulations. And I've absolutely, it resonates so much. I found those comments really difficult and invalidating. Um, Mm. I think like people forget, I think like sleep deprivation must make people kind of forget. it's a great question and it's one that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment and I don't really know. Um, I think it's really very difficult because um, I think it's very, it is so well-intentioned to protect someone in their pregnancy. Um, and I know that certainly I I didn't want to hear, hear things in my own. I think, I think it probably is partly um, the job of better information just simply given to people in antenatal appointments. And I think there could be just a kind of, you know, a kind of a a much more respectful giving of the possibilities of, um, you know, what can happen, what postpartum recovery can look like, Um, you know, kind of stripped from any feel like you know delivering that information in a neutral and I, I this could be completely idealistic and I really really acknowledge how difficult it is for healthcare providers and people um but there has to be a way there has to be a way of um of improving things in in the book I talk about there's a there's a statistic of a um a postpartum a, a big postpartum health book and I think it's from the states and like something like 0.01% is spent on like physical recovery for women and it's something like that you know and there's lots more books now about recovery but like I I didn't know for example that I would bleed for a really long time I didn't know about 
birth injuries and what that can mean for a person um and I talked to a consultant gynecologist um, about it and you know she's done lots of work and loads of work amazing work um and and surveys and talking to women and and she said to me women want to know so and I I discovered after giving birth that something like 80% of first time births will um cause some kind of tear or birth injury so that's by far the most likely thing that's going to happen and I think just for that information to be told neutrally so you're able to prepare for that and more more focus on the um postpartum period for uh for the the woman um uh I think I would have been helpful definitely (laughs) um Uh, what are your thoughts on postnatal depression? Is it possible that rather being at being internal and individual, that it might at least in part be born from a society that fails to acknowledge matrescence? And as you say, the deception around so many parts of pregnancy and the postnatal period. About really good question I don't know if you can hear my three children fighting um mine have just come in the door as well actually appropriately (laughs) would you mind repeating the question it's about postnatal depression and whether it might be from society rather than um an an individual um the causes um yeah it's a great question um one of the questions that I wanted to try and answer was, you know, how much of maternal mental illness and maternal health problems could be prevented through a better society, which is a, a kind of impossible question to answer. Um, and I talked to a, um, a scientist called Lisa Galia from the States and, you know, she talked to me about, you know, how seismic and huge the hormonal changes are in in pregnancy you know some hormones um changing 200 300 thousand times hormones that we've never experienced before hormones that don't even have a name some we probably don't even know yet um you know and she said to me like because of this then this kind of withdrawal of those hormones dropping after birth you know there is going to be some level of um you know mental illness and um great vulnerability um with that so you know there's certainly a kind of um you know a a clinical medical um you know thing physiological um uh happening but saying that um i think that we you know i i was given a diagnosis of postnatal depression and i was treated with um uh, antidepressants first off and then therapy and kind of as the as the years went on I just I did think you know how looking at how we treat women who are becoming mothers and how society is you know very hostile and um, you know just in terms of the everyday like public places or transport you know you can't take a buggy onto a train or you know, child austerity and you know neoliberalism has just like decimated community and um, you know, children's centres and sure start centres all, all closed down, etc. Um, to you know, the fact that you know, healthcare is not adequately invested in, uh, that we've got this huge maternity crisis. There, there's all these social and structural issues which are 
frankly, you know, appalling. <clears throat> and if, you know, would could it could it be better? Could there be um less mental health problems? I mean, we know that there are diff- there are there is like a rate kind of globally post mm-hmm. depression, it's and it and it and it happens. Um, but as the great neuroscientist um jo- Jody Pulaski said to me social support really helps we know that social support can really uh impact on um you know people struggling and so on so i i mean i would say we need a kind of bio psycho social more holistic model and um that that motherhood today clashes like so intensely with um you know hyper individualism and kind of predatory capitalism and um that there are you know big big issues um in how we think about the world um how we devalue caregiving and um neglect caregivers and we don't want to be seen as vulnerable or weak um so yeah that's a long answer thank you um I th- this might be the last question from the audience um lucy thank you so much for writing this book I feel so very seen and validated by this conversation and I cannot wait to read the book. I wondered when the matrescence period ends and whether there is much research into the period after early parenting and whether the physiological and psychological changes are permanent. (laughs) Um, Yeah, great question. So um, it's really Mm -hmm. exciting, this kind of cutting edge field of um, the parental brain because they're, they're all publishing kind of right you know it's it's really happening right now and, and essentially what we seem to know is that the changes um definitely last for kind of six years and and probably much longer the the brain seems to wax and wane it seems to kind of change through motherhood <clears throat> also i mean we haven't mentioned this but quickly like the 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 caregiver brain so um the paternal brain or um adoptive parents or mothers who haven't been pregnant you know we're finding that of course you know we're all born with the circuitry in the brains to be able to deliver caregiving and those brains also change hugely and in, in shape and so on um i would say there's no like hard fast definition of matrescence i imagine you know I'm, my daughter's only seven so it's quite young early for me but i imagine matrescence probably continues in different ways through the life course um um, and that maybe perhaps every child is a matrescence. Um, for me, the, the initial matrescence was the most kind of, you know, shocking and um, changing. But I think there's a lot more that we will learn. And the main thing is that, you know, it's a big deal for women and and we should um, an- allow that and acknowledge it. All right. Thank you so much. Um, there's many more things I would like to talk to you about, but we're going to have to wrap up. I just want to say that I'm so impressed that you wrote this book while having three young children, the youngest of which is still still a little toddler. Um, and it's a, a terrific book, which I which I urge uh, everyone to read. So I think uh, we're at the end now. Thank you so much, Lucy Jones. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank Lucy, you. Amy, thank you so much for such an amazing and and 
candid conversation and for giving our audience so much to think about we really appreciate that um and thank you all for your questions too and please do take a look at 5 by 15s website to see information about our upcoming events we have a conversation with alok jar and tim smedley on this coming thursday at seven o'clock about solving the world's water crisis and you can find all the information at 5by15.com lucy and amy thank you so much again and good night thank you everyone